Good morning, and welcome to episode 55 of Metamorphs United for Frequent Dialogue. Muffed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to be here today with Sam Livingston Gray. Thank you, Jessica, and I'm pretty sure this is still greater than code, but I love that also. I'm also really thrilled to introduce my friend and co-panelist, Astrid County. Thanks, Sam. I think we need our own really cool acronym so that it'll be easier for us to go through these introductions. But I would like to welcome our new panelist, Jasmine Greenaway. Take it away, Jasmine. Hello, I am Jasmine. I'm super happy to be here. I am based in New York City in the nice, beautiful Brooklyn where the lattes and kale is abundant and the kombucha. Can't forget about the kombucha. And yeah, and I'm a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft. And our guest today is Keith Bennett. Keith is a longtime software developer who started his software development career writing an in-house accounting package for a construction company on an Apple II in AppleSoft Basic. And wow, that takes me back. He's worked with several languages since and has been working mostly with Ruby for the last few years. He's lived on four continents and now spends most of his time split between Chiang Mai, Thailand, and Reston, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C. His other interests include karaoke, current events, foreign languages, massage, technical community, and becoming a better human being. You can find him on Twitter, GitHub, and LinkedIn as Keith R. Bennett, two N's, two T's. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thank you. Glad to be here. Keith, we often like to start the show by asking you for your origin story. What is your superpower and how did you get it? If I could think of one superpower that I have, and I don't know that I have any, but uh, one thing that I did think of when I thought about this question was uh, that I'm, I'm pretty good at explaining things to people and understanding what they mean. Sometimes I'll be in a conversation and I'll notice that the, the two people talking are just not understanding each other at all. And um, I'll step in and, and say, did you mean blah, blah, blah? And... Um, just expressing that in a different way seemed to enlighten the group and, and um, help people understand each other better. Keith, is this a trait that you've always had, or is this something that you actually worked on over time and got good at? Not sure. Uh, I think it's I think it's improved over the years. Um, I'm a pretty introspective person and, and trying to understand um, my thoughts and my actions and their effects on other people, and um, that includes the other direction thinking about the thoughts and actions of others and how they affect me. And uh, I guess just focusing on that helps. Well, you seem to be in some doubt. And in my book, that definitely qualifies as a superpower. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I find sometimes just being able to notice when somebody is, when two people are using the same word to mean two different things, like just noticing and identifying that one thing can make a huge difference in their conversation. Absolutely. A shared vocabulary is so important. Yeah. And exact, when you think you share a vocabulary and you don't, it's the worst. It's like the word persistence in functional versus OO development or property. We use those totally differently and it confuses the snot out of people. <laughs> there was a lot of stuff in your bio. I would love to hear more about your origin story and how all those little pieces came in. Grew up in New York City, graduated high school when I was 16, went to college for a year, got bored, went to Europe, rode around on a motorcycle for six months, lived in Sweden above the Arctic Circle for free. Couldn't find a job, so studied the Swedish language, so I, I speak it a little bit. Uh, joined a, um, a very unconventional religious group for nine years of my early adulthood. Left it, lived in um, Central African Republic for three months at that time. Got married, had a child. Studied accounting in school, and uh, as I was working as a, a bookkeeper and an accountant, I started getting interested in computers because we got a computer at our office that was a turnkey hardware and software combined system for client accounting, 
And I found that there were a couple of basic manuals in the drawer and that I could actually get it to do things that it wasn't already programmed to do. And it was really exciting because as a bookkeeper accountant, you have a calculator and the only thing that you really have to work with is a single register, you know, and there's no instructions you can give it. There's a, you can just store one value. So to have this, this incredible machine that had so many possible storage areas and, and, and an infinitely flexible behavior um, was super exciting to me. And although I continued to study accounting part-time at night to, so that I could just have a degree, I realized that I was way more interested and enthusiastic about um, software development than I was about accounting. So I never became an accountant. I had the, the help of a mentor friend who helped me learn C language in the beginning. But after that, it was totally self-taught. I didn't um, have any um, formal education in computer science or, or programming, which, you know, in a way is unfortunate, but in another way is not because I have a feeling I would have lost interest if I had. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, really. I got a D in my first computer course. It was about mainframes and um, it, it really wasn't a very interesting course. And, it wasn't like it is now, anyway. Well, yeah, the nice thing about when you started is that you, you came in at a time when it was possible to understand everything about the machine you were working on. <laughs> yeah, almost. I mean, I, I dabbled in assembly language, but didn't get too far. But uh, it was certainly a much more limited scope than it is now. Much, much more, I agree. Um, so over the years, I, I well, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area shortly after I started my career. And um, so uh, some of my jobs were government, some were commercial most of them were in places that were kind of rigid. So it was totally different from the startup culture of today and, and the, the, the more um, flexible culture of today. And to be honest, there were a lot of jobs that I had where I felt like I was just one cog in a huge machine and um, had a very narrow responsibility and didn't really learn that much, wasn't really happy. And in addition, some people, I had some really good managers and I had some really bad managers. And over the years, I just realized how incredibly connected my human experience was to my happiness in the workplace. You know, how important it was to have people that were understanding and flexible and inquisitive and energetic. And I started to see more and more how things were so much an issue of, of human interaction and, and not so much about technical things. And so I decided to think about that more and talk about that more. And that's when I started writing about it. And I am very interested in, in, in how we can improve the human condition. And I, I want to try to do my part to help. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, Keith, I, had a, I, I noticed something you said in the beginning about your origin story. You said you lived in the Arctic Circle for a bit. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's really cool. and really <laughs> fascinating. Well, I, you know, I was 18. I went to Europe. I, I bought a motorcycle. I started riding and I got tired of industrial cities. And I asked people, where should I go um, where it's different from where I've been? And, and one person said, go up to Lapland. And I said, where's Lapland? Oh, it's the northern part of Sweden and Finland and Norway. And so I looked into it and um, I took a ferry from Denmark to Finland and rode up the length of Finland, crossed the border and uh, Arrived in this town called Yelevara, which is above the Arctic Circle, and uh, was greeted at a gas station by another motorcyclist who started talking to me. And uh, he said, do you want to meet my club? And so I said, sure. So I followed him out of town, and it was about six kilometers. And I was wondering, you know, where am I going? Is this going to be a motorcycle gang? Is my life in danger and everything? And so we ride up into this club, and there's like 70 bikes out there. And they were the nicest people. I decided to stay in that town um, where I stayed for about three months. 
they let me sleep in their motorcycle clubhouse. I didn't have a place to stay. One of them, his father was a, a parliament member, and, and he kind of took me under his wing and um, introduced me to people there. And so it was really a very interesting experience. I'm 18 without any skills at all. So although I wanted to find work, I couldn't. And so I spent all day just studying Swedish. And this, this friend, Johnny, his, his sister helped uh, teach me Swedish. And uh, I continued to study a bit after I, I returned home. But um, it was uh, August when I arrived. And by November, it was already about 30 degrees below zero. Um, oh. The northern lights were gorgeous, but it was too cold for me and too cold to ride a motorbike. Was that so Fahrenheit I, or I, Celsius? Well, I think they kind of converge at about that value. So, oh, um, right. Celsius, like minus 44, I believe. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anytime you're in the negatives on either scale, I'm like, we're done. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Well, and that's why I live in Thailand during the winter whenever I can, you know. It's, I just <laughs> ah, I was wondering what the balance was with Thailand. Yeah, it's partly a climate thing, but it's also a, I'm tired of this stressful life in America. You know, there's so much conflict here and so much stress. I, I just want to go somewhere else and, and relax. And so staying in Chiang Mai a lot of the time, it's a wonderful place. So why come back? Because I have a daughter. And I want to stay connected with her. Um, she's grown up. And uh, so there's that. And um, also, I found that I really enjoy coming home and reconnecting with friends. And um, uh, I just went to WeCamp last weekend. And that was an amazing experience and one that I hope to repeat every year. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's, it's, you know, there are things to appreciate about being in America, too. I love this country. And uh, I love other countries as well. Keith, I think you said the word conflict. You said the one reason you go to Thailand is because there's less conflict there. I believe you do some work to reduce the conflict that we have here. <laughs> well, I, I try to butt in whenever I can and whenever I think I can be helpful. It was an unconference, and so I just proposed the subject conflict resolution. I got up in front of everybody and I said, I want to talk about conflict resolution. I don't really have any solutions, but I want to hear yours. Um, and uh, so we got a group of really good people. Um, who shared some interesting experiences and um, uh, got some good ideas from that. So, so what is what are some of the suggestions you got? What did you learn? Well, one of them, which which I echoed, was to read the book "Difficult Conversations." I found it kind of a, a, a slow and difficult read at times, but it has some incredible ideas about understanding the other person's point of view and resolving the situation. One of them was by rather than assuming that. A problem is due to one person or the other being totally at fault. Um, understand that usually it's more nuanced than that. And each party has some responsibility in the problem. And I, I gave an example of a time when that happened to a friend of mine. Um, another thing was to listen first. And um, we always want to be right and, and provide a solution and and be the, the hero and everything. But a lot of times um, it, it's we just need to listen and understand what the other person is saying. And sometimes they just need to feel listened to. And so we have to kind of suppress ourselves and, and, and our, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about everyone. I like that phrase. It's not about me. I use that a lot when there is any sort of conflict and I start to feel defensive. Almost everything another person says or how they react to me is about their situation much more than it is about me. 
Keith, I have a question about how do you feel about mediators? So, and I ask that because, you know, mediators purpose is to, you know, kind of be the neutral party between, you know, two numbers of people who are trying to, you know, work something out. And I'm curious, what are your feelings toward that in in terms of, do you think mediation is ever harmful or like the ways it can be harmful and helpful? Well, first of all, let me say that I, I do not at all consider myself a scholar or an expert on conflict resolution, but I'll be happy to share my personal opinion. I think mediation is extremely helpful as long as both or all parties are, are open to it. Uh, if they're not, then it's kind of a waste of time, I think. But if so, mediators are skilled at uh, understanding the other person's, one person's point of view and expressing it, sometimes expressing it in a way that is understandable to the other. And uh, also in initiating uh, or suggesting compromise, which uh, may not have been thought about otherwise. Right. Um, what do you how do you feel about when mediators are trying to stay in that narrow road in the middle, that like kind of that middle lane? And one party is, you know, mentioning, you know, they feel offended by that, that, you know, that this mediator is like, you know, this mediator is saying this is my I'm trying to stay neutral into this. And. The other, the other person of Hardy might say, that's wrong. Why, why do you side with, you know, why are you not taking a side? This is, you know, maybe it's a moral thing or maybe it's something that is like maybe a big priority to one person, but not, might not be to the other. How do you feel about that? What are your opinions on that? I've had personal experiences in mediation where that's happened to me and it's extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the answer. I, I guess we just have to think, well, of the two suboptimal paths, which one is the better one? And and hope that the when it all resolves out in the net, that it's better. The net Gosh. effect is it's better. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, it's asking you such a hard question. That's a question I've been actually thinking about for a while now. Mm, it would be really interesting to get mediators on the show and and talk about their experiences mediating people. That would be wonderful. Oh yeah. So, Keith, do you have a framework for conflict resolution that you use, or do you just sort of go in there and wing it according to what seems right in the moment, or how do you approach this? Well, you know, I'm I'm not really a scholar or anything about this. I haven't read a ton of books or anything. Um, I do just kind of wing it. Sometimes you have to make the decision not to enter the situation at all. If there's a threat of physical danger, for example, I think about the, the two men who lost their lives helping um, the two Muslim girls in Portland, and they're my heroes. And there are not too many of us that are willing to risk our lives to do the right thing. Um, and it's a personal decision. So, yeah, sometimes the question is if and not how. As far as how, I just try to do the right thing, you know, and sometimes I screw up and other times I don't. The other day, I, I wanted to go to a co-working place, so I went to a uh, a great place I like to go to in Chantilly, Virginia, but it was all full. So I had to go somewhere else. And so I drove about 10 minutes to another coffee shop, got in there. All of the t- tables were filled except one. That table was between myself and uh, a, a man two tables down from me. And he had his backpack on the bench, just almost where that middle person would have been sitting. And I got really angry. I thought, you know, this guy should no better. And, and I thought about, well, what am I going to do here? Am I going to say something or not? If I say something, is my anger going to show and will it be counterproductive or will it have a happy ending when the person says, oh yeah, I'm sorry, you're right. 
And so eventually I decided to, to say something about it. And I said, uh, excuse me, uh, is that your bag? And he said, yeah. I said, would you mind moving it to the chair across from you so that if somebody's coming here, they don't think that the table is taken? And he got very angry. Really? And he started being sarcastic and nasty. And I tried to dive under my emotions and 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 just, you know, say the calm thing and in response to him. And there were some, some interchanges. And eventually I just decided I've done all that I can do here without escalating it to an unacceptable level. So I'm going to stop now. And um, and he left the bag there. So there are a lot of obstacles to initiating an action like that. Uh, one of them is the possibility that you'll fail anyway. Another is that you'll be verbally um, abused or at least disrespected. Another is that you'll be physically abused. And there are others as well. Sometimes uh, we're just shy to do something which other people don't already do. We don't want to be different. I've decided that I don't mind being different. And um, if there's something I can do to help people around me um, and it's not going to hurt me to do it, I'm going to try to do it, even if it's weird or embarrassing or whatever, because, you know, we only have one life on this earth. Why not spend it trying to help each other? And, you know, when we help each other, we're helping ourselves. It's kind of a cliche, but it's really true. When I help somebody, I feel really good <laughs> and um, I enjoy it. My hope is that, you know, I wrote this blog article about radical helpfulness and another term for that could be radical kindness. And there's so much conflict now these days uh, in our country and all over, really. And I feel like a lot of it is because we've become so distant from each other. We, we hang around in our own virtual and ideological worlds. And the one thing that we can do is perform acts of kindness totally agnostic to our beliefs. I saw a great uh, news article many months ago. There was a, uh, a tr pro and anti-Trump demonstration. And one of the anti-Trump demonstrators, an adult, I forget exactly what he did, but he, I think he said something really nasty to a, a young boy, maybe eight years old. The boy had accompanied his parent to the demonstration on the pro-Trump side. And the boy started crying. And one of the anti-Trump demonstrators, a, a woman went up to the boy and comforted him and I thought, what a beautiful story. This is what we should be doing more. This is what we should be talking about. And if we can make those connections, then maybe we have a shot at reducing the amount of violence, negativity, hate, conflict, selfishness that plagues our society, plagues humanity. And now, now more than ever, we don't have time to be bickering. We have our human race has existential problems that we need to be addressing. We need a thousand Manhattan projects on how to deal with climate change. There are so many things, so many problems that we have. We don't have time to be messing around with this little stuff. We, we have to start thinking about our future, the future of our children. It's really important. Something you said early on in there uh, really strikes a chord with me about just being willing to take that first step. And that put, puts me in mind of a psychology study, um, which you can find by Googling psychology and the smoke-filled room. Um, this is an experiment where they had uh, people come in and uh, the experimental subject was asked to fill out a questionnaire. And there were some number of Confederates in the room as well who were also pretending to fill out a questionnaire. And the real experiment was they started uh, piping smoke into the room through one of the room's vents. And the experiment was to see like what the 
person would do. And what they found was that a lot of the people in this experiment would sit there and they would see the smoke and then they would look around to see what everybody else was doing. And everybody else, you know, the Confederates were instructed to stay calm and just keep filling out their surveys. And people would take a remarkably long time to actually respond to the smoke, like to the extent that if there had been an actual fire, they probably would have been dead. Um, and that really speaks to me about what you were saying about the willingness to just take that first step. That can be, well, as you say, radical. Absolutely. And I find that a very good antidote for that is karaoke. <laughs> and, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but actually it's really true. Because when I first started doing karaoke about 20 years ago, I felt very shy. I didn't feel comfortable doing something that, you know, was going outside of myself. And we really have to overcome our, our shyness in, in that respect um, because it's it's really a fear. It's really an insecurity, you know, like how could I do something that other people aren't doing? And it's inappropriate and it's not constructive. Well, Keith, I think it seems to go back to what you said about how you had to decide that you were okay with being different. I think that that decision is something that's hard for a lot of people. I don't know if many people even consider that that might be something that they need to think about because what you're talking about with making certain decisions and choosing to say something or not say something also means that you have to have some sort of self-awareness. And it seems like to one of your earlier points that we spend so much time in our virtual worlds that we don't really spend that much time thinking about who we are, what we want, you know, what kind of impression we want to make on others. So do you have any advice for how somebody who kind of maybe notices that they would like to be a little more intentional could get started? You mean besides karaoke? Besides karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's just practice. A few years ago, um, I had a fear of flying. Whenever I would be in a, in a plane and there, some noises would, you know, I'd hear some noises or I'd feel some vibration or something, I would be frightened. And I would think, oh, what does this mean? What's going on? And so I read a book called Triumph Over Fear. And it was a great book. And eventually I, I resolved my fear of flying by taking a couple of flying lessons and feeling what it was like to dive and to um, uh, feel two Gs and, and that kind of thing and understanding that the sensations I was feeling on the plane were nothing compared with what would happen if there were a serious problem. But the reason I'm mentioning this is that the approach that she used in the book, Triumph Over Fear, was that she would take people very gradually through their phobias. And um, I, I, I don't think it would be too inappropriate to call it a phobia when somebody is afraid to reach out. And so what she did was there was an example, I believe, it was a long time ago that I read the book, but I believe the example um, was of a lady who was um, afraid of high floors and tall buildings. And so she brought the woman to a building and she said, well, how far can you go before you start feeling uncomfortable? And so she said, oh, maybe 10 feet in front of the elevator. And so she said, OK, let's walk 10 feet in front of the elevator. And then she said, you think you could take one more step? And so she took one more step. And then maybe that was it for the day. And they went home, you know, and they kept on doing this. And after a few sessions, she was already on the 10th floor. So my point in saying this is that we can hack ourselves. We can, you know, we can um, change ourselves. The way to change ourselves a lot, I believe, is to change ourselves a little many times. And so we can ask ourselves in a situation, how far am I willing to go before I start feeling uncomfortable? And then ask ourselves, well, what can I do in addition to that? How, how much further can I go in addition to that without feeling super uncomfortable? 
and, and doing that. And once we start exercising that muscle more and more, we can make more progress than we would have otherwise. A lot of times we cripple ourselves by just thinking about where it is we want to go. And we look at how far that is and we think, oh, man, I'm never going to get there. So I'm not going to try. And that's unfortunate. I can so identify with you on the fear of flying. My strategy was very similar to yours. I did not fly. I did not learn how to fly, but I read like a bunch of books on uh, flying and like the, the little things that you hear. Like uh, I think I read a blog post about this pilot who basically has this blog about like folks who are afraid of flying and he goes through the whole entire process. He's like, when you take off, you're going to hear the the landing gear drop. And, you know, you're going to, so it might sound a little funny. So it sounds funny from plane to plane. Every plane is going to sound different, but these are like the normal things or the things that you're, you're probably going to hear. Cause that was like a big thing for me. It's just the sound. So for me, like working through that and like trying to like face those things and kind of read about it and be like, okay, this, I can do this. I can do this. And then I also started very, very small from like a very few short trips and then worked my way up. So that definitely resonates with me little by little. It's great. Keith, the discussion about fear of being different reminds me of a conversation we had on this podcast with Eugenia Chang, where she defined the words congressive and ingressive, where congressive is behavior and needs that are about helping everyone. We want to be part of the group and advance the group. And ingressive is, it's about me. I want to advance myself. And as humans, we naturally have a lot of congressive urges and like we get rewards from things that help everyone. And I think this whole part of not wanting to be different from the group is part of our congressiveness. Personally, I use the word congressive inhibition, which I made up, which is that impulse that holds us back from standing out or doing something that might annoy other people. So that fear of being different in some ways is part of us wanting to do things to help everyone, but yet it can hold us back too much. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is just trying to make an informed, informed judgment about where that line is. Yeah, you're right. It's about learning that because that part where you don't want to stand out, that is part of you wanting to help the world. That's not something bad about you, but there's a balance where mm -hmm. you can help a little more by being different in some situations. I agree. That question about, is this going to be annoying or helpful is an important one, but I think only for a subset of behaviors, because there are some behaviors that are indisputably beneficial and where there is no really gray area. I, I mentioned in an article about one time when I was at a hotel in Toronto and there was a fire alarm and, um, we were all told to leave the building and we were out there for like 20 minutes. And I saw this family who had apparently been swimming and they were freezing. And I just walked up to one of the hotel staff and I said, you know, that family over there, they look really cold. Could somebody get them some towels or something? So he did. And in that case, there really wasn't any kind of downside to, to acting. But I've had to condition myself to do that, to be the one to, to go up and say something, you know, and uh, <laughs> just, a couple of days ago, I was at my gym and they were uh, playing on the TV a, uh, a political commentary show, which was not really news. It was commentary. And it was about Donald Trump. And I won't even mention which side it was on. It was actually on the side that I support. And I said to the, the man there, I said, you know, I think a lot of people would feel kind of bad seeing this on TV. Can we put it on something more neutral? 
And he said, well, nobody's ever complained about it before. And I get that a lot because <laughs> right. I am more vocal than anybody I know. And um, I, I thought to myself, what I should have said was, someone just did. <laughs> yeah, there's often that that unspoken thought that everyone has and no one wants to be the one to say. Because you do, you risk that rejection, right? Yes. I ask myself, what's the worst that can happen? And really, usually <laughs> the worst that can happen is somebody says, no, don't do that. And then I say, okay. Mm. I was at a seminar on Kanban and... At lunch, it took about 15 or 20 minutes for everybody to get fed. Later, the leader of the session said, I noticed that at lunchtime, it took a very long time for people to be fed. The table was up against the wall, so there was only one line of people that could have gotten through. If you had moved the table a few feet over, you would have had two lines, and it would have taken half the time. And I thought to myself, well, that's really true. If I had thought of that, would I have said anything? Or if I wouldn't have said anything, why would I have not said anything? And th there, there are, are so many reasons. And um, Yeah, there are a lot of reasons. And those reasons are usually like, well, maybe there's a reason the table's up against the wall. There's a lot of reasons for things that we can't just see. But what's the cost of asking, of suggesting? There really is that personal risk of rejection. I think some of us are more sensitive to that than others. Mm -hmm. Personally, I'm yeah. really not. So my theory is, well, I'll ask because it'll cost me less if I'm wrong than it might someone else. I understand the feeling of not wanting to say something, but I also grew up in a family with a grandmother who was that person who said something. So there were very many times <laughs> where... Like we would go to the store and then they would ring up her stuff and it was not the price that it said. And, you know, a lot of people would be like, oh, that's a few cents. It's not a big deal. No, my grandmother was like, no, that's not what it is. She would stop the whole line. She didn't care because to her it was, why should I have to pay for your mistake? And she thought that was important enough because she felt like if I don't say anything, then other people are going to have to pay for this too. And that's crazy. And so that's her attitude about a lot of that. More so like the idea of how can you help the group for her means I speak up as opposed to I don't because I don't want to ruffle feathers. Nice. That behavior of speaking up is actually congressive. Yes. 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 Uh, there was a trip we took where we were all on this bus together going somewhere and we were going like between states and this woman had these little like confetti thing she was popping because I believe it was 4th of July, which was annoying. And she was close to us. And so my grandmother stood up and said, excuse me. And she, I don't remember all the words because I was like cowering in my chair, but she said, basically like this, what you're doing is very loud and rude and you're getting confetti and other people. And I would very much appreciate it if you stop because it's not necessary. And the woman was like, well, nobody said anything. But then after my grandmother <laughs> sat down, the entire bus started clapping <laughs> because obviously they all felt this way, but they were so afraid to say anything. And, you know, my grandmother's thing was the bus driver should have said something because that's the person with some authority. But if they're not going to speak up, then I'm going to speak up because this is crazy and we shouldn't have to go through this because this woman doesn't have manners. All right. So all of this is reminding me of a conversation we had uh, yesterday in our Slack channel and 
By the way, uh, if you're listening to this and you're not in our Slack channel, you can get into there by going to patreon.com slash greater than code and donating any amount. Um, we have some really interesting conversations in there. Uh, but yesterday we were talking about fire alarms because uh, Jessica posted something in there about fire alarms and their function as a tool to make some of these decisions a little bit easier. Jess, you want to talk about that a little? Oh, there was that thing where we talked about it earlier, didn't we? The experiment where people didn't get up. Mm -hmm, the smoke-filled room. Right. And it turns out that if you turn on a fire alarm, then they get up and they go out. So oh, fire It's like a permission been. thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think you dropped a tweet in the in the guest questions channel about how fire alarms aren't useful because they tell you there's fire. They're useful because they tell you it's socially acceptable to react. Right. And then Jacob pointed out that also when the smoke detector goes off, no one panics because a smoke detector is a socially acceptable, calm way to announce a fire as opposed to running around screaming. <laughs> and he had a great comparison to linting. So like pointing out that you've forgotten a semicolon at the end of this line might be constructive, but it's annoying as hell. So we have the linter do it. The fire alarm's kind of like that too, so that we, we can like build automated machines to do that interruption, that pointing out activity for us when it's socially painful uh, to have a person point out that you put a space after your stupid curly brace. I wonder if there are ways that we can use our processes, build these points into our workflows where we can uh, have checkpoints and make sure that everything is going smoothly and, and make it socially acceptable to say, hey, I noticed this thing. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, my friend Emma, is it's her job currently to notice failed builds and like pester the developers whose build failed after she determines that it, it wasn't just a transient failure. And this is like hard for her. So we're currently working on an automation for this using Atomist, plug for my work. <laughs> but there's reasons I work there. And one of them is because she's building an automation to look at the build log, determine why it failed, and then ping the developer. And when a bot does it, there's not that social cost. Keith, so you called this radical helpfulness? Yes. And it's important that it be radical because we want to go well beyond our normal level of helpfulness and even our comfort level. So it's radical because it's uncomfortable. I like that because the name kind of gives us permission to be uncomfortable in order to be helpful. Yeah. There's something that you talked about way back at the beginning. And it's when you said, and this is why I laughed at that at the time, I try to butt in whenever I can, whenever I think I can be helpful. But then you immediately followed that up with one of the things you can do to be helpful is listen. And that it's not about you. So in this radical helpfulness, in fact, if you feel really good about it, like I'm so badass, I am going to move this table, then it becomes about you. And there's a decent chance you're not being helpful at all. Like if you walk into someone's conversation and they maybe they don't want you there. Actually, that's a question. When you, you mentioned you hear two people yeah, who are not communicating, how do you ask them whether they want your help at all? Well, I, I guess it depends on the context. I mentioned in the blog article about, uh, and also in the, um, the conflict resolution meeting that we had, I had a situation where, uh, a couple of my coworkers were arguing. It was a very heated, uh, argument. And I just walked up to them and I said, would a third party be helpful here? Uh, because 
I realized that I didn't want them both turning on me. I didn't want to be the problem. I want to be the solution. So it's a delicate balance. And I've learned from hard experience that sometimes I'm wrong. And so I, you know, I, I try to always keep in mind that I might be wrong here. So I must not be arrogant about what I think is the right thing to do or what I think the solution is. Yeah. And if someone doesn't want your help, you got to step back. Oh, yeah. That wouldn't be helpful <laughs> to not step back. Keith, I'm curious about the things that are kind of like the markers that you see when you know that like it's time for you to take a step back. Um, one of the things I think about is like body language. And I guess that's probably the main thing that I, I can think of right now. But what, what about you, Keith? What do you, what are your markers? Body language is a huge thing. And uh, of course, asking up front is, you know, it, it's, it's probably the safest thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that's not an option. And just got to make a judgment. It's a calculation, you know, the, the perceived probability of success and failure and the perceived risk of danger and all these things. Just got to make a calculation at the, the, the spur of the moment and, and hope that you've made the right decision. Because I, I have had the experience of proposing what I thought was the no-brainer solution, and it turned out there was something deeper that I hadn't thought about. Um, that happens in code all the time, too. You know, I look at some code, and I think, well, that's silly. Why did they do it that way? And then it turns out that they had a really good reason, and so I've learned that I really need to be very respectful respectful of others and, and not jump to conclusions and not think that I'm infallible because I'm not. Yeah, there's a lot of ugly code out there. <laughs> That is beautiful. You just don't know why. (laughs) You know, one situation that I find it very hard to do that sometimes um, is when you in a a remote environment. So lately, you know, the past few years, a lot of companies have been embracing this, you know, remote I don't want to say culture, but remote, yeah, this remote setting where folks can have the chance to sit down and, you know, be in their comfort zone at home to, you know, work on, you know, whatever, to do their job. And I think about when you're in a video chat or not, or sometimes when, you know, the audio is off. Like, I think about how well do I know my team to know when I need to either step back or input something and it can be very challenging especially especially when you know you can't see everybody and you know you sometimes a lot of your communication is just through chatting just like chat like in the chat room yeah that's a that's a big issue that's why it's so great when uh, remote teams can get together in person sometimes periodically yeah i agree i think in the end we just have to give ourselves permission to make mistakes and you know and just make sure that we're doing things out of the right intention and make sure that we're being respectful of other people. Um, but there are times when I'd rather take a risk than, than, than not, you know, even if I'm not sure. So it, it's, it's really a judgment call and we have to give ourselves permission to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And when someone tells me no, because, or even just no, I, I say thank you because that's a piece mm-hmm. of information I didn't have. If I were on the receiving end of a no, I would be really curious to know why. Why no? Is it disrespectful to ask somebody why? I guess it depends on the context. I mean, like with my kids, there's to- there's a few times when I just say no. That's because it's like dangerous or we don't have time to explain it or something like that. Other times I do, I do think it's rude to say no and I owe them an explanation. Mm. Sometimes the answer is no and you don't want to know why. Mm. <laughs> they don't want to know about grown-up things. <laughs> I get that with my daughter a lot too. 
That was some really good advice. I like how you said that we need the right intention and respect for other people because the right intention is not enough. Mm-hmm. We also need information and other people have that. Oh, yeah. Our context as individuals is so limited. I think it's time for reflections. So this is where each of the panelists gets to bring up a piece of the podcast that they found particularly insightful or bring something else in to think about. Okay, so part of my reflection is that your life sounds like a movie. And so I need to do more. (laughs) I've had more time than you have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, still, I mean, what you had done by 20, (laughs) like I'm still still on my bucket list. So you said (laughs) the way to change ourselves a lot is to change ourselves a little many times, which Mm. is a really, I think, a great, amazing quote, because I feel like oftentimes I have goals and I can see like the path, but getting there feels very overwhelming. And I think it's the same when you're really talking about working on yourself, which can be sometimes harder because nobody can see what you can see. So I love that what you're really saying here is just do something really, really small, but just do it so many times that eventually you'll get there without even really thinking about it. I also wrote down that quote about the way to change ourselves a lot is to change ourselves a little many times. I really liked that. One of the other things that stuck out for me was uh, this idea that you should decide that you're okay with being different. And I like that you that you called that out as an actual step that we need to take because I've known a few people who just, they were different and that's just how they were. But uh, I feel like there are a lot more of us who who need to actually be explicit about that. Um, I also really liked your suggestions about uh, doing karaoke or taking flying lessons. Those were, uh, were interesting things that I hadn't really thought about in terms of ways of, of training yourself to, you know, in one case, get over a fear of flying. And and in the other case, I think of it as just training yourself uh, to be bold. Um, So that's really useful. Thank you. So for me, I think that same quote also resonated with me and also made me look just within myself to really think about how my character and, and how I just connect with other people. And just as it was a really great reminder just to be mindful of myself and my actions. One thing that I noticed in this episode, uh, like you said, Jasmine, it's about being mindful. There's a lot of conscious thought in all of these ways of being helpful and resolving conflict. There's a lot of conscious listening and thinking and then making deliberate choices of what to do. The karaoke is a very deliberate choice, the how to deal with the fear of flying. Each change ourselves a little many times. Each of those is conscious thought and choice in order to form the habits that we're trying to become. And you know what? If you're doing that, good job, because that's a lot of effort. It's not easy and it's not comfortable and that's okay. I find it very heartening that all of you are so introspective and caring about wanting to live a good life, the right life, um, helping other people. And my my hope is that um, there are many, many other people like you out there and uh, we can all work together to create a safer and happier world. Group hug. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You can't see my arms, but they're out in front of me. (laughs) All right. Thank you for joining us for our Uniting for Frequent Dialogue. See you on Slack and on the next episode of Greater Than Code. 